0: Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, in the midst of these changing seasons, we've just come off a time to remind ourselves of the things that we have to be thankful for, the ways in which You have blessed us with such a rich abundance. Father, spiritually, You've blessed us with salvation to those who trust in Christ. You've blessed us with a church family to be loved for. And cared for and nurtured. Father, you've given us physical families. You've given us mothers and fathers. Father, these are such sweet gifts from a loving God that we ought to be thankful for. Sometimes, maybe even today, we can begrudgingly not be thankful for those relationships, be thankful for those friends, those family members. We're our church, but Father, we ask that you would overflow our hearts with thankfulness, knowing that these things are gifts. And Father, as we change this season to a season of Advent, where we remind ourselves of Christ's coming, that on that day in Bethlehem, God dwelt among us. Christ in flesh came to be Emmanuel. To be the light who would one day through His death, through His shed blood on the cross and His subsequent resurrection and ascension make all of those who trust in Him victorious. The same victory over death that He experienced, we too, those who trust in Christ, will experience. Father, that it's not just about His first coming, it's also about the promise that we'll see in Zechariah 14. It's about His second coming where He will one day come back to finally and forever claim His creation for Himself. Where He will dwell among His people and we will worship Him. And Father, we long for that day. Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would bear fruit, just as Christ reminds us in Mark chapter 4, that it may take time. But Father, that the seed sowed by your word never returns void. So, Father, be with us as we study your word to see this message from Zechariah and how it applies to our lives today. Father, help us. Father, by Your Spirit, illuminate these words that You would apply these rich truths to our lives that we might look and be more like Christ because of it. Father, encourage those who are faint-hearted. Father, provide strength to those who seem weak. Father, we also ask that You would Give a prodding to those who are slipping into laziness. Father, that we would be used by You to reach the nations. Father, we think of Spencer and Mahdi. Father, we pray for their work in Norway. We pray that You would continue to give them opportunities to serve not only in their local church, but in churches all across that region. And Father, that You would use the Gospel message that is the power of God unto salvation to powerfully work in that region that many of whom have never heard this Gospel. Father, be with Spencer, be with Madi as she's continuing to translate different books into different languages. Father, we pray that You would continue to give them um, a way to continue to work And Father, we pray that you would open up um, the work there in Norway. Father, be with those who are continuing to be affected and afflicted by this pandemic. Father, we pray for our frontline healthcare workers. Father, we pray that you would give rest. Father, that you would protect them. Father, that you would continue to have your hand on us. Father, that you would Keep us safe. But Father, ultimately, we know that this world is not safe. And it's only when we trust in Christ that we are more protected than we could imagine. So Father, in the midst of fear, in the midst of chaos and calamity, Father, let us look to Christ for our confidence. Father, be with us This morning as we conclude our time in Zechariah, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're like me, you've at one point or another, or maybe even right now, had friends that when you would watch a movie with them, they would spoil it or they would be talking the entire time of, well, I I think this is what's going to happen. I see the main character. I think what's going to happen is going to... Okay, shh. I'm trying to watch this thing play out. Hey, this, this football game, I think this is what's going to happen. I'm seeing some, some looks from different people and some laughs from other people. Maybe you are that people. Maybe you are that person. <laughs> Who, in watching the return of the king, you say, I think the king's going to return. That's good on you. Well, in Zechariah 14, not only do we have this end of the story, right? It's the end of Zechariah, but he's not just concluding the book. He's concluding his entire prophecy. He's concluding everything. As some commentators say, Zechariah is letting us in on the very end of the very end. And just in case you're wondering or you're thinking, oh man, what's, what's it going to look like? Jesus wins. And those who trust in Him win with Him. We don't win apart from Jesus. We don't win in our own strength. We win in and through and only because of Jesus, And Zechariah has let us see, he's let his original hearers, these exiles from Babylon, be able to see with such vivid imagery who this Messiah is, what he will do, how he will rule and reign, and how he will remove sin and iniquity from their land forever. In a single instant. This promised Messiah does this work. Well, as he concludes, this coming Messiah will see victory on this day. So this is the end of the end, but it would be totally unlike us to say that Zechariah has been easy (laughs) because it hasn't. (laughs) But here some great theologians turn and skip Zechariah 14 altogether. Not entirely, but if you're familiar with the 16th century great reformer Martin Luther, who went down in history for his 95 theses that he wrote on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany, showing that the papacy was incorrect, it was invalid in accordance to Scripture, and he gives 95 reasons why. Well, this same Martin Luther, when he turns to Zechariah chapter 14, in his commentary, he writes, And here I give up, for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. So we're in good company today. We're in good company this morning. I don't expect to give a better revelation than Martin Luther. But I do think that from our study in Zechariah, we can summarize Zechariah's message through Zechariah 14 as this. The main point of Zechariah 14 is that calamity and chaos mark the day of the Lord. But those who trust in the Lord have confidence in that day. That calamity and chaos mark the day of the Lord, but those who trust in the Lord have confidence on that day. How many of you would say that 2020 has been a banner year? Maybe you all could say Daniel has been... An enormous blessing. (laughs) We're not in what seem to be normal times. We're wearing masks on Sunday morning. This doesn't feel right. It seems calamitous. It seems chaotic. But you think this is bad. It's going to get worse. So imagine the original hearers just coming back from exile, just seeing the temple rebuilt, just having these proclamations of this Messiah is coming. And here's what he's going to do. Your enemies that have come against you, they're going to be scattered. Sin, iniquity, gone. Idols, no more. A spirit of prophecy, gone. And then as if this awful twist in Zechariah 14, it just they talk about a conclusion of a sermon or the conclusion of a speech that it needs to land the plane softly. Well, Zechariah 14 is that cartoon plane that just kind of g- rolls over and over itself and comes to this screeching halt with blazes around it. This is where we are. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Calamity and chaos. Mark the day of the Lord. But to these exiles and to us, we are not left in vain. We are not left to our own devices. So, why am I preaching this sermon? Why are we in Zechariah 14? Because I want your confidence. And I think Zechariah wants your confidence. He wants his original hearers' confidence both now, for them post exile, and forever. To be in Christ alone. So I'm preaching this sermon so that your confidence, my confidence, both now and forever will be in Christ alone. So we've seen throughout Zechariah that a very, very boiled down summary statement of Zechariah is that it is pointing towards a holy people. Worshipping a holy king in the holy city. And we've seen prophecy after prophecy, vision after vision that we're just kind of like, I don't know what's going on here. But here in Zechariah 14, he is reminding us that calamity and chaos mark the day of the Lord, but to those who trust in him, they have confidence on that Day. So, Zechariah makes this argument in kind of five progressions. Five progressions or subtle divisions, however you want to think about it. He talks about a defeated people. Exactly what exiles want to hear. You want to know what's next? Your defeat. But then he starts his second section and says that there will be a turning of the tide when the Messiah Himself will come and fight for you. Thirdly, we'll see that there is a final destruction of the enemies of God. Fourth, the Messiah's kingship, the Messiah's rule on earth will cause His people to be delighted to worship. And lastly, in section 5, we'll see a holy nation, a holy nation. I'm going to, because it's the entire chapter, I'm going to break it down in different sections so we won't read a long section together. So we'll stand at this first section. If you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, I'm going to read chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. You may be seated. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of his word. So these Post-exilic people find themselves in the middle of two exiles. Then I'm I can't imagine, as Zechariah is prophesying this, that they were excited. That they were happy after verse 2. Verse 1, maybe, right? Because in that day, the day of the Lord, the spoil that's been taken from you, right? Babylon, the Chaldeans, they've ransacked you. You've all the while grown up under affliction. Even from the time of Moses and the Exodus. But there's a time coming where the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. So you're thinking, wow, victory happens. Spoil is coming back to us. This is great. Hold on for verse two. For I will gather up all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. We think that the world wars, one and two, have been atrocious, and they have. There will not be a single nation that will not participate in the coming against God's people. So this plunder that's just come back, all of the nations are going to come against Jerusalem. battle, And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. This is an incredible, stark reality of what's coming. The half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So even in the midst of this chaos and calamity, it's not complete and utter destruction. Because the whole biblical storyline is very similar to this. That God's people persevere in and through affliction. Not because of their own strength, but because God himself is preserving a remnant. So too, as the day of the Lord comes. So they may be a defeated people, but they are not a finally defeated people. You might say that they are primed for a comeback. But it's not because they have a star player sitting on the bench. It's that they have the Lord Himself who will fight for them. And this is where we see the turning of the tide. Verses 3 through verse 11. So those nations who go against Jerusalem to fight against them, the Lord will fight against them. This is a promise in the Old Testament that God makes to His people, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others, that those who come against His people, He will fight for. Well, He will fight for His people when other nations come against them. That if a person turns their hand to the people of God, God will fight them. What an amazing reminder That when we feel like we need to bow up and fight our own battles, God fights for us. If we are walking with Christ, if we have placed our trust in Christ, He has already fought for us. In Christ. The victory that we most need. It's not a war. It's to be freed from sin that has happened through Christ. And likewise, this war to be waged, it's not won by their own merit, but it's won because the Lord comes and fights for them. Like in the first advent where Jesus steps into the scene of that feeding trough in Bethlehem. So too will this Messiah come again, his feet again land on the earth. He doesn't sit back and send others to do his bidding. He comes and does it himself. Verse four, that on the day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and it shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. If you want to get into the nitty gritty of why north, and why this and why, I don't know. If that's what's got your mind racing other than his feet on the mountain that just split in half. Let's talk about the split in half mountain because it has a point. Not only does it illustrate that the God of creation again steps foot into it, but he has the authority to do whatever he wills and wishes to it. Just as Jesus came and tells the wind and the waves to be still. And it does. It's gonna get really cold here in Kentucky tomorrow. High of like twenty six. No, low of twenty six. High of thirty four. It gets better. I want to, first thing in the morning, maybe even tonight, go outside and say, be warm. It ain't going to work. But this Jesus, this coming Messiah, when he steps foot on the earth, it shatters the mountains so that the people who are being defeated in the city receive freedom. Verse five, that you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azul and you shall flee as as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So it's not just the Lord himself. He's bringing an entire army. Commentators believe these aren't just the angelic ones. These are also those in the city. God does use us in these ways. So this splitting of the mountain causes this way of survival, this way of exit, this way of escape, this way of exodus this to his original hearers would have immediately turned them to the Exodus and their forefathers being delivered. And we'll see illustrations and allusions to Exodus as plagues come against the enemies of God, that they will be standing in the midst of this chaos where it almost seems as though the corpse are walking. And even just as the first Exodus, horses are completely overcome just as they were swallowed up in the waters as it closed in as the Israelites escaped. So this turning of the tide is the Messiah coming and being with them. And the whole land, verse 10, shall be turned into a plain that Jesus coming and stepping foot on the Mount of Olives, this is not Matthew 5-7. through 7. This, is, this is not what's going on because there were no earthquakes at that point. Not as the one that will come on the day of the Lord. But before we continue in verse 10, verse 9 is that this proclamation... That we all long for with hopeful e- expectation and anticipation. That the Lord will be king over all the earth. We may look at even our own homes and not be able to say the Lord is king over this household. We continue to wage war against sin, but it seems as though sometimes we lose So not only our home, not only our zip code, not only our city, state, nation, but the whole world. Jesus physically, bodily comes to recapture his kingdom. That he will be king over all the earth. Well, what about the Philippines? Yep. What about Tasmania? They've got some crazy stuff over there. Is he going to be Lord over that? Yep. Lord, over that too. the proclamation and pronouncement that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden to be fruitful and multiply and to expand this garden outward. Because of sin caved in and perhaps at its most small point upon exile. And now Jesus comes back to do only the work that he can do. And it begins to stretch out the expanses to where there is no inch. There is no zip code. There is no amount of the sea that hasn't been explored. He is Lord of it all. He's Lord over the coronavirus. He's Lord over cancer. He said, Lord, over stupid political agreements, arguments, stupid political arguments. Jesus is the Lord over all the earth. That would be a fitting way to end Zechariah. It really would. Think, think about all of the things that have happened. The, the Lord is continuing to, to remove sin. He's continuing to prepare a people for his namesake that he will then return to when they return to him. So it would be a just conclusion, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Amen and amen. But it's not because it continues. That this day of the Lord continues with calamity and chaos, but we can rest assured as a people of Christ who trust in Him that we have confidence to endure. Because this day of the Lord continues to be not only our mountain split in two, but it continues to be this incredibly unique day. I don't know why I'm getting my verses mixed up so we're going to backtrack all the way back to verse 8 That this unique day where the lord comes and he is king over everything it brings with it this incredible change of season that living waters flow out from jerusalem the half to the east and half to the west and it shall continue As summer and winter and preceding verse in chapter in verse seven, that there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be light. Verse six, on that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost. Wait, 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 wait. What? There was frost on my windshield this morning. There seemed to be frost on me this morning, but on this day, on this unique day, there shall be no light, there shall be no cold, it's unique, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. And we're not talking about Alaska, where they get night after night after night after night of continuous sunlight, and then night after night after night of continuous darkness. This is perpetual. This is a reminder that when the Lord is in their midst, as John in Revelation marks, that they will need no light. Because the Lord is their light. So we see a defeated people in verses 1 and 2. We see the turning of the tide when the king comes and reigns bodily. That this day is a unique day. And third, we see in verses 12 through 15, that there are destructions of the enemies of God. And before we kind of get comfortable of, yes, confidence comes to the people of God, and chaos and calamity comes to those who don't follow Him. We need to be very careful that we don't take promises for ourselves that are not ours. One, if we're not believers, we don't get comfort in this day. If we're not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we've not placed our faith in Him and repented of our sin, we get chaos and calamity on this day. That's why later in the New Testament, the reminder is while the day is still today, this urging, this response to continue to reach your neighbor, to reach your family member with the gospel of Jesus, because if they don't trust in him, chaos and calamity will come to them. So we should both be cautious in the way that we receive, oh yes, these promises are great, we'll take them, we'll take them. But the moment that a pronouncement of hardship we're exile. We're like, oh, that's not for me. That's for them. We just need to be careful, and and rather than saying and and realizing and basing our our faith in Christ, let me rephrase that because that sounds awful. Rather than leaving this assurance and not doing anything about it, this. Warning of chaos and calamity for some, even if it's not us, right? We are so sure in our faith in Christ that we have turned from our sin. We're continuing to fight sin. We don't look like Jesus yet, but by golly, we're trying. We put off sin. We seek to draw near to God through his word and through prayer. And so we say we with every account that the scripture gives us, these promises are for us. These are for me. So then let it drive our evangelism. That sure, chaos and calamity might not be coming for you, but it is coming for some. That we would be so zealous that while today is still today, let us continue to labor in proclaiming Christ. When I had a knock on the door about eight months ago, it was a couple from a church I won't even tell you the name because you shouldn't research it. But they came and they said, we've got five questions and you can pick one of those five questions and we have to be able to tell you the biblical answer. One of those five questions was, how can you receive protection from God? And I was like, I don't know anything about your church, but that's a pretty good Jesus. And they began to just say all of these weird things. And I was like, oh, dear goodness. That's not the gospel. If our gospel is how do we seek uh, to not have calamity and chaos in our lives? Well, we take the Lord's Supper. Our confidence, both now and forever, comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If if we are to base any other merit on any of the other roulette tables, we've lost it. And that is a horrible analogy because Jesus isn't a gamble. Jesus is a sure thing. That when you place your faith in Jesus, you can and should have confidence. But that confidence also leads to Evangelizing, sharing the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus has done in redeeming a people by his death, burial and resurrection. So long introduction to point three, destruction of the enemies of God. Verses 12 through 15. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. So not only is the Lord coming and fighting against all these nations, but he's also proclaiming plagues against them. And here's what it is. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot In their mouths. This is a fulfillment of the covenant promises. Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. The the disobedient ones who are fighting against God's chosen people. This is the curse. You will be utterly obliterated. That on that day, you will not be able to stand if you do not stand with the Lord. And it continues this destruction of the enemies of God that on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another. So not only is God waging war against those who come against his people, he is pronouncing plagues against them and he's causing them such confusion that they then take it out on one another. My old children's pastor used to say he had this song that was whose side are you standing on? And the kids would respond, I'm standing on the Lord's side. If this is what happens with those who aren't on the Lord's side, I sure as heck want to be on the Lord's side. This utter destruction has no end. That even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall also fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever, whatever beasts may be in those camps. Utter victory is happening for God. The Messiah has come to rule and reign and he is winning. Big. That it's not just the people who come and wage war, it's also the horses, the mules, the camels, and the donkeys. And I know we've got some animal lovers in here, and so maybe some of you are like, oh my gosh, did he have to do? The punishment for sin fits the crime. The punishment for sin fits the crime the crime and the enemies of God receive utter and total destruction. But in this, there's hope that as we turn to verse 16, that those, even those who have waged war against God's people, they will even be brought in and be delighted to worship this king. Verses 16 through 19, then everyone who survives of all the nations. It would seem very fitting for this to say, and everyone who survived from the battle at Jerusalem would receive. This is everyone who survives of all the nations. You see, there are some who would like to say that the Bible is so ethnocentric That it's only for the Israelites. That it's only for Abraham's line. No, it's for all who would repent and trust in Christ. That even those who wage war against his people will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. The Feast of Booths has kind of a very zoomed-in emphasis in this chapter. What is the Feast of Booths? What would have been the Feast of Booths? Again, remind ourselves of the Exodus. That God delivers his people through the water, and he leads them through the wilderness without homes. He provides for them a fire by night and a cloud by day so that they're not afflicted by the cold and not afflicted by the heat. But they don't have homes. So Moses was instructed to construct booths. They were to make small tents to remind themselves of the goodness of God because they weren't in bondage anymore. They weren't in captivity anymore. The continual ramping up of the requirements of the Israelites under the Egyptians rule is no longer. The God is preparing a people to indwell a place. To worship him. But what do we see? The Israelites, some of them say. Moses, did you just you just took us out here to kill us? Why not just leave us in Egypt where we had some food, man? So this Feast of Booths intended to be this thanksgiving, so to speak, of what God had done for them in rescuing them, had quickly turned into a gripe fest of, oh, I can't believe you did this. But here again, the reminder is to come and worship and to remind yourself of the goodness of God. The Messiah has come. He's now ruling and reigning in your midst. All of your enemies are like corpses that are walking. He's calling them to worship. And they will be delighted to do so. Because in between the first exodus and this last exodus... There was a second exodus. There was a middle exodus. There was a first advent where Jesus comes bodily. And the rescue is not from a physical place or from a physical people. The rescue is from themselves. There's a covenant promises that God had been calling his people to. They couldn't keep. But who could? Jesus could. So again, the victory that they need, they couldn't do it on their own. Only Jesus could. You see, so chaos and calamity is marked. That's the day of the Lord is brought with chaos and calamity. But to those who trust in Christ and him alone, both now and forever, can be confident And lastly, not only are they delighted to worship, but they are made a holy nation through and through. There's not a single aspect or inch that is not holy. Verses 20 through 21. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. So that all who sacrifice might come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This twofold holy to the Lord ought to draw us back to Deuteronomy and to Leviticus. You see, the people of God were never called holy, there was only one who was called holy, the high priest. But even he, through our time in Zechariah, we are reminded that Joshua, the high priest, is sitting before the Lord in filthy garments. Even the one whose turban is inscribed holy to the Lord is not holy to the Lord. Later, the New Testament writers pick up on this holy to the Lord, that we are now saints if we are in Christ both made holy by the precious blood of Christ, but also being made holy by Christ. Well, this end of the end, everyone just will be holy. Just as the priest was meant to be holy, just as all of these other things were meant to be holy, we will be holy. We will yearn and long for being holy people. We will long to worship our holy King and we will long to worship in the holy city. Zechariah 14 shows us that it's coming. In time, it is coming, but we can continue to worship our Lord today, right now, every day. That just as we've sung, he is worthy of worship. That we can worship him and wait for this second advent where Jesus comes again. What a day that will be. When we will see him. Not through a veil, but we'll see him face to face. So let us go under this charge of Zechariah that while the day of the Lord is marked by chaos and calamity for those who trust in Him, they'll have confidence. Let's go in confidence and let's go and seek to push this kingdom forward. The kingdom of Christ. That while we still have an opportunity, we can share the Gospel so that... Those who right now, this day of November 29th, who are cursing God and writhing at Him, would see how sweet He is. And would not experience the chaos and the calamity that is theirs, but would rather be delighted to worship. So let's work to that end. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that your kingdom has come in Christ and that it is coming. Father, help us as a church to continually seek to build your kingdom through the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. Father, give us opportunities to share the gospel with those who are far from you. Give us opportunities to see those lost become found, those who are dead in their sins and trespasses be made new through Christ. Father, be with us. Cause us to be obedient to this task. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.